Hi, welcome to the next thrilling installment of Three Worlds, the Shamanism Podcast. <laughs> Hi, it's been a few weeks. Um, I've been busy, I've had flu, uh, we're getting the next issue kind of almost ready to go to print, and uh, it's just been one of those times, but enough excuses. I've just been lazy, I've been enjoying myself, I've been putting my feet up in the garden, <laughs> as if... Anyway, today I'm going to talk about uh, altars. We kind of touched a little bit about altars last time uh, when I was talking about offerings because of the offerings that you can put on altars. But um, I thought it would actually be quite good to talk about altars this time sort of as a topic within its own right. So what is an altar? Well, an altar is a space outside of ordinary reality that is within ordinary reality. Now try and get your heads around that one. That's my definition. An altar is a portal, it's a gateway, and it has an element that is outside of what we think of as the ordinary everyday, and yet it is a physical thing within the ordinary every day. So an altar is a space that is defined. It has an edge to it. It has an edge to it so that you know that this bit is on the altar and that bit is not on the altar. It needs to be defined. It needs to have a well, it's like a gateway. It's like a gateway. And a gateway either is a gateway or it isn't a gateway. The fence by the side of the gateway is not the gateway. The hole in the middle that you walk through, that's the gateway. And you know what is and what isn't. It's probably slightly less easy to tell that with a gate than it is with an altar. A good altar, you should know exactly to the nearest millimetre where the altar is starting and ending. So, it's a space. Okay, so I'm going to describe an altar to you. This would be a typical altar. Okay, um, let's think. If I was going to do a pipe ceremony, okay, so I'm going to create an altar for myself in front of me. I'm sitting down on the floor with a circle of people around me, and I'm putting together an altar. This is the altar that I would put together for the pipe. So, I would put a cloth on the floor. The cloth would be uh, an object that I would have used lots of times, ideally. I like to use altar objects generally that have been around for a while because, for me, they have more intent, more mind power, more thought power about the fact that they are sacred objects. Um, you can also think of them as storing uh, sort of psychic energy within them too, but we'll we'll kind of leave that to one side for now. So, okay, I've put this piece of cloth down on the floor. So, next, for me, I would uh, light a candle or, or a sort of Tibetan-type butter lamp. Uh, now, that's not terribly traditional with pipe ceremonies, but it's what I've done for the last 20 years. So, it's traditional for me. So, that's what I do. I light a candle. Um, in the pipe, that's got lots of practical reasons too. You can light matches and things like that off it. But forget, forget that. I mean, just for me, that's what I do. So there's this little pot, little bronze or brass pot on my altar. And 
that's got a candle and a light on it. So now I'm going to put the pipe down on the cloth. I'm not going to put the pipe down on the ground because that would be disrespectful to the pipe. You don't put a pipe down on the ground. And lots of sacred objects are like that. So you don't put them on the ground, you put them on an altar. And the altar is a cloth, and that is outside of normal reality, like I've said before. So you're putting the pipe down on the cloth. Not half on the cloth and half on the carpet, or half on the lawn, or wherever you're doing the ceremony. On the cloth. I would then smudge everything. I probably would have smudged it before I'd actually put anything down. So I would have smudged the area probably. I'll certainly smudge the cloth. I'll smudge everything that goes on to the altar. So I've now got a small collection which I've probably added to. Maybe I've put a rattle. Maybe I've put a feather fan, little medicine bundle, whatever I want to put on that altar. And it is outside of ordinary reality because it is contained on that cloth. And my intent, my mind, my gut willpower, if you like, my magical intuition, call it whatever you want, says this cloth is sacred, the carpet next door to it and underneath it is not. So that, that's the principle of an altar in the very simplest terms. It's a space outside of time and reality that is separate and is a container for the sacred. And it would be perfectly fine to put anything down on that that you wouldn't normally put down on the floor. For instance, the pipe. You just wouldn't put a pipe down on the ground. But you can if the ground is an altar. Okay, so let's, uh, let's think of another sort of altar. Outside a traditional sweat lodge, you have um, what's called the turtle's head. Now, when you're doing a sweat lodge... Uh, the, uh, the, the pit inside the, the, the lodge where the hot stones are put, the hot rocks, you get the soil from that place, you bring it outside of the lodge by where the flaps are, and you make a mound. And when I've done sweats, generally I will make that a defined edge by putting stones around it. So there's a circle of stones and a little, little mound of soil. That is the sweat lodge altar. It's called the turtle's head because the, the, the main domed shape of the sweat lodge is the turtle's body. So you've got this little head coming out from the big dome, which is the body. So you've got the whole thing being a, uh, being a, a turtle. So that's why it's called the turtle's head. So a pipe can go down on that because it's outside of normal reality again. It's an altar. So... It's perfectly fine, and in fact, it's good practice to put a pipe down on that. So you put a little V-stick, uh, which is a pipe stand. You rest the bowl of the pipe down on, on the turtle's uh, head on the ground, and the stem is sort of pointing up to the sky, sort of caught in this V-stick, which is then stuck into the ground, sort of uh, in the middle of the, uh, uh, the middle of the altar. So that's another form of altar. Now... I've got two altars in my house. I have a, a house altar and I have my own altar. And I'll explain a little bit about those. These are just my ramblings. And I, what I want you to do is kind of think about them for yourself, about how you do it, because this is just how I do it. Some of the stuff that I do is going to be traditional. Some of it is going to be felt in my gut as being right for me. And that's the important thing. You really have to blend the two of tradition and gut. 
uh, I was talking to a, a guy, I can't even remember what tribe he was in, um, he was a Native American teacher, and uh, he was talking about pipe, and he was saying, there's the way that you do a pipe ceremony, and then there's the way that you actually do it. So, tradition and gut. It's got to be alive, it's got to be a, a, a real thing, so you need both. So, okay, two altars in my house, my house altar and my personal altar, my medicine altar, my shamanic altar. So I'll talk about the house altar first, which is probably the one I tend more. House altar is, um, it's on top of a cupboard. So again, the edges are defined, but the cupboard for me is still part of ordinary reality. So I put a brocade cloth down on it. So there is uh, a sort of beautifully shiny gold brocade cloth, and that makes the top of the cupboard an altar, a sacred space. Take that away, and for me, it's just the top of a cupboard. Now, I know some people wouldn't need to put a cloth down, that's absolutely fine. If you can maintain in your mind, in your intent, that the top of the cupboard is a sacred space by itself, with nothing there between the bare wood and the medicine object, but perhaps a layer of paint, then it's an altar for you. That's absolutely fine. For me, I like to kind of dress it up a bit. So I put down this nice brocade, and the brocade says to my kind of inner being, hey, brocade equals sacred. So that's what makes it an altar for me. So, okay, so I've got the brocade down. I've got the edge of the altar, where it turns the side of goes down the side and the front and the back of, of the cupboard. So the top is the area. So that helps to define it too. So I've then got an image above the altar of, uh, for me, because I'm Tibetan Buddhist, uh, in a lot of my practice, the, there's going to be a lot of Tibetan stuff here. That's just me. I mean, other people will work with different things. But for me, there's, uh, there's a tanker of Padmasambhava, uh, which has uh, it's got offerings made to it in the form of, of uh, silk scarves and things like that, which are traditional to, to put over uh, statues and, uh, and tanker paintings. So, okay, that's above the altar, that's sort of behind it. Now, actually on the altar, there is a butter lamp. There are little bowls for watering offerings, like I talked about in the last podcast. There is a statue of uh, Saravati. Saravati is a Tibetan goddess of creativity. Now, I'm an artist and a musician, and my home is my studio. And uh, to me, the arts are quintessentially where it's at. So uh, for me, that's the most important thing. So my, if you like, my home altar is mostly an altar to creativity. So I have a big bronze quite old, probably at least 100 years old, statue of Saravati. And Saravati is a beautiful uh, Tibetan uh, sort of uh, goddess, um, and she's playing a long-necked lute. Uh, so she's sitting there playing this lute, big statue. It's, it's about, uh, I guess it's about 14 inches high, something like that. It's a big bronze statue. Okay, so I have got... Uh, because it's the, the house altar, the house is also about people. So I have got a, uh, a gao box. Now, a gao is a Tibetan shrine. It's a little metal box, 
um, that is dedicated to members of my family. And so if you like, it's a medicine bundle. It contains objects and images and thoughts and intent to do with protecting members of my family, especially my kids. So that is, uh, that is there set on the altar and that is, is cleaned and smudged and everything else on a regular basis because it's very much part of the home. Now there's a, a little pot, a little sort of cloisonne pot, which uh, is a, a Tibetan incense burner. So I burn incense. Now that's uh, partially to do with smudging and it's also partially to do with making an offering. So that's also on there. I have a pot where I put people that I'm doing healing. Now, I do a fair amount of healing work for people from time to time. And a lot of the way that I do that is to make a safe place for them. I invite them to come into, in effect, my domestic setting. They may be the other side of the world. I actually do tend to work most with, mostly with people on the internet. So um, they could be thousands of miles away. So what I actually do is I have a special container which I put a doll into, and the doll represents them. And it's made very beautifully. Uh, the, the, the pot is, is lined with soft fur. They are given beautiful objects in there, and they are contained within this, uh, this Chinese cloisonne pot, which is uh, a safe place for them, for their spirit, for their soul, for their energy body and then I will do healing work with them imagining them being with them contained on the sacred space of my altar uh, I've got other things on my altar too but that's that's sort of basically it so I will tend my altar mm, almost every day without exception really very rarely do I not and that's only because I'm very busy or I'm out or something like that so I will tend my altar sometimes several times a day I will light new candles I will burn new incense um, and that for me is the center point of the house it's the power point of the house the house revolves around that it's important to me to keep that clear tidy clean and tended if a altar is not tended it gets messy and the energy around it gets swirly and disturbed and it will spread out from the sacred center point that is the altar to the everyday world and it will start to make your house grotty it will start to make your life grotty if you have an altar you have a responsibility to maintain it and if you can't maintain it put it to sleep or take it apart when I talk about putting an altar to sleep, generally it's covering it with a cloth. Put a cloth over it, especially a red one, over an altar, and it goes to sleep. Just like a parrot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so that's my one altar. Now I must tell you a story about uh, a house altar in a house where I lived about 16 or 17 years ago. Uh, at that time, I was the warden of a Quaker meeting house and a mental health group rented the meeting house on a regular basis each week and uh, used it for, for seeing their clients. And um, we were fairly used to, uh, to having the clients around and whatever, and it wasn't particularly a bother. But uh, one afternoon, I was a knock on the front door. 
So I, I went to, uh, to open the front door and there was a woman there who I'd seen occasionally going up to the mind group, uh, the mental health support group. And um, this woman was obviously in a very disturbed and agitated state and she pushed past me straight into the house and came into the hall and proceeded then to go into uh, a, a room leading off the hall, which she walked straight through and then walked through a door at the back of that room, which went into a further room right in the back of the house, which was the room that contained my altar. She came into that room. I mean, this was like a kind of uh, tornado, this, this sort of storm of energy sweeping through the house quite a large woman, I remember, and uh, through the one room, through the next room, into the room with the altar, turned the corner where the altar was and sat on it. This altar was on a small chest of drawers, about sort of two and a half, three feet off the ground, something like that, just about bum height, perfect for sitting, and she sat on it. So altars can be attractive to all sorts of energy. I then spent the next 10 minutes talking to her, calming things down, coaxing her off my altar, gradually got her through all the rooms that she had actually walked through, sorted out what it was that she was agitated about, which was part of her sort of paranoid personality disorder. So, I mean, she, she wasn't in a rational state and uh, kind of ushered her out of the, uh, the front door closed the front door, came back, smudged my room, smudged the house, reorganised the altar completely, smudged it, tented it, looked after it, some TLC. So altars will teach you all sorts of things. Now, my other altar is an altar that I only tend to actually work with when I am either wanting to make offerings to the spirits or predominantly when I am doing shamanic work. So if I'm going to do a healing or I'm going to do a ceremony, I will kind of turn on the big altar. Now, the big altar is uh, a much bigger cupboard. Underneath it, I keep, actually in the cupboard, I keep all my medicine objects. And uh, it's got drawers and everything else, so I keep all my supplies in there. I have altar cloths in the one drawer and candles and matches in another and incense and more sacred objects in another drawer. And then on the top of the, of the cupboard, there is, uh, again, there's brocade and there are statues of the beings that I work with. And then there's a set of shelves behind on the wall and each of those has statues and offering cups and different ritual items. Again, it's very Tibetan. This is an extremely Tibetan um, altar. And uh, so there's, there's lots and lots of ritual objects from Tibet on there that I actually use in my practice. And that's my Tibetan practice and my shamanic practice. So that for me is the altar which I will go and work with when I'm really needing to actually work with the spirits. It's not an everyday kind of sacred lifestyle altar. It's uh, a sacred altar for me doing shamanic work. And those are the two different forms that I have. Now, I've also got an outside altar. And the outside altar is generally where I will go and give offerings, especially uh, things like uh, I made water offerings in the day to the household altars. 
you actually need to get rid of that water in an appropriate way. So I will take it outside very often and I will uh, give it to the ground on the outside altar. Also, that's the same place that I will put the ashes from a pipe ceremony or I will put food offerings if I'm giving, doing food offerings or other forms of offering. That's a much less defined altar than the rest. Um, and I'm going to break my own rules here and say that actually I probably couldn't tell you where it begins and ends. It's just a sacred area in the garden. So maybe it's not even an altar. No, I think it probably isn't thinking about it. It's just a place of respect outside that I use. Um, it's, uh, it's a small area between... I've got two big uh, fl uh, flagpoles with uh, prayer flags and there's a big stone standing up. Uh, about sort of four and a half feet high um, with uh, offering scarves tied round it and uh, the statue of the Buddha and there's various other bits and pieces and it's just a small area that I will tip the ashes from the pipe and, and make the offerings and things like that. Okay, so one of the first things you have to do before you create an altar is work out what that altar's for. And it can be as simple as you want an altar that's going to reflect you as a sacred being or just the sacredness of life or whatever it really doesn't matter but you do have to have an intent and it has to be fairly focused otherwise it's going to get wafty it's like anything in shamanism or medicine or any spiritual system really you've got to have a clear focus of what you're doing you can poddle about a bit and you can explore and you can improvise and I'm not knocking that because very often then spirit talks to you and you kind of get it clear. But eventually you have to have this clarity of why you're doing it. So, reasons that you could create an altar. Okay, domestic one like I've done for myself. Easy peasy. Lovely thing to have in every house. Um, the mantelpiece maybe, although I suppose a lot of houses haven't got mantelpieces and fireplaces and stuff now. I'm lucky I've got that because it's an older house. But... Um, that would be a natural place for an altar. Around the fire is a very natural place in uh, in Celtic traditions. I'm afraid I don't know very much about them, but you have Bridget, the uh, the keeper of the half, and uh, I'm sure there's people listening to this podcast that know far more about such things than me, because that's not my tradition. But, uh, you know, that's a very traditional thing to do, is to make the hearth a sacred place. Okay, so maybe that's one thing you you have. A domestic altar. You have an altar maybe that is for your medicine, for your shamanism, like I have with mine. Okay, so what else? Maybe you have a sick auntie. She's proper poorly. And you want to look after her on a psychic level. So you can set up an altar for her. You can put down a piece of cloth. I just like using cloth because for me it defines the the kind of the, the, the edge. There's an edge to the cloth. You know where the cloth is. You know where it isn't. A cloth to me says altar. That's just my way. You could use a, a, a wooden chopping board. You could use anything you want. It doesn't matter. But it needs to be suspended, as I've said earlier, away from ordinary reality. Okay, so you've got this poor, sick, miserable auntie. You're putting down an altar for her. The object of the altar, the intent, is to help her die quick so you can get the inheritance. No, um, no, it's to make her better. It's to make her better. Okay, it's to su support her. Maybe she's feeling miserable because she's in hospital or she's stuck in bed with the hot water bottle and only the cat for company, whatever. So, you put down beautiful things for her. Light a candle for her. 
maybe put a little vase of flowers there. Yeah, I forgot to say I've got flowers um, on, uh, on my altars, either silk ones or real ones, but there's flowers there all the time. But that's, that's me, that's, that's part of my tradition too in, in Buddhism. So you put down things for her. Maybe you put a picture of her. Maybe you put images that celebrate and symbolise wholeness, being well, whatever. Use your intuition. It's a dance. It's like playing a piece of music without it being written down. I'm a musician and I can't read music, right? Music for me is something that flows and is natural. And I meet other musicians that have trained for years and years and years and you take away their book of notes and they're lost. Medicine, shamanism, ceremony is like that. You've got to dance with it. You've got to play with it. You've got to improvise. You can't do it by looking at the musical score because if you do, it's dead. You've got to be with it from your gut, from your toes to your nose, following what you do with it all the time, in the moment, being playful, exploring it, sensing, using your whole body to sense what is happening with the energy on the altar, in the ceremony, with the person in the room with you. It's absolutely flying by the seat of the pants. Sure, there are set traditional forms of ceremony. I'm not suggesting that you don't use those. But again, you've got to do them flying from the seat of the pants. You've really got to be like that. So this altar is going to speak to you. It's going to tell you what it wants on it. And you play with it. You put something down. You feel in your body, is this right? Is that wrong? Uh, don't feel quite right. Okay, take it off. What else? Rummage about in the cupboard. Find something else. Tin of chicken soup. She likes chicken soup. Great. Put this tin of chicken soup down on the altar. Magic. Whatever. It's got to feel right for you. It's got to feel intuitive. It's got to be alive. It's vibrant. It's absolutely got to be alive. And it talks to you. And the more you let it talk to you and get your head out the way, the stronger it gets. Okay, maybe you need money. Work with an altar for money. There's a Buddhist practice. There's, there's money uh, symbolism on my house altar. There's a, uh, a particular Buddhist practice with a, a sort of Buddha-type figure called Jambala. Jambala is a Tibetan being that uh, is there for practitioners to ask for money from because we all need money. So that's an important part of my domestic altar because I won't have a domestic altar unless I've got the money to pay for the food that I eat the electricity that I burn, and if I don't keep feeding the nice man at the mortgage company, I won't have a house. So that's important. That's an important part of life. I was talking to uh, Heinemus Storm, Chuck Storm, Wolf Storm, writer of Seven Arrows, and uh, I did an interview with him, and uh, one of the things he was saying was about altars, and he was saying, if you're a fisherman, you put a fish on your altar. And that's absolutely straight up. It's logical. It's sensible. You work with a computer. Get a little toy computer, a model of a computer, a photograph of a computer, whatever. Stick it on your altar. Make it there as something that is part of your sacred life. That doesn't mean you have to devote yourself and make offerings to the computer. But it's saying this little bit of energy, this little bit of the universe is part of my dance as a human being. And I need that there for me. 
So you bring it into the sacred. Everything in shamanism is sacred. Your car, your washing machine, everything. If you bastardize things and say, well, that's not sacred, then you're splitting. You're splitting between you and it, between what's alive and what isn't, between what's sacred and what isn't. Everything in the universe is sacred. In a way, there is no reason why you couldn't put down medicine objects on the carpet. This is the dichotomy of it all. You could put them down on the carpet, you could put them down on the most dirtiest place imaginable, and it'd still be okay. But our little heads don't work very well like that, so it's easier for us to work with the concept of there being a space that is suspended from the everyday. But remember, it's all bullshit. There is no suspension from the everyday. You just have to get to the point where you can realise that. A lot of the Tibetan objects that are beautifully made out of uh, bronze or copper or silver or gold or, you know, they're beautiful, they're great jewel-encrusted metal objects that are used in Tibetan shamanism and, and Tibetan Buddhism. If you were doing meditation retreat in a cave, you would make those out of clay. The, gr the grot from the cave floor, baby. Bits of twigs, whatever you could get your hands on, because it's your mind, your will, your intent that creates them into the sacred object. And it's your dialogue with the nature of space and the nature of reality and the nature of spirit that actually instructs you in how you do that and work with it. So you have to have that playful attitude. Have to have that playful attitude. It's got to be alive. Okay, so somebody comes to you and they want to do some work with their past. They want to call up the spirit of their mother or whatever and confront them because they wouldn't let them watch television when they were a child and they're deeply traumatised by that. Okay, so you make an altar that somebody goes and stands on. Now that's a whole different kettle of fish and it can be very powerful too. Okay, uh, this is a ceremony that I do sometimes with people. I create a circle. I put down a cloth and, and I create a circle. And that circle is defined. So inside the circle is an altar and outside the circle is not. I will make that altar with stones. I will make that altar with eagle feathers. I will make that altar with salt. I will make that altar with sage. You know, the stuff that you burn, a, a smudge, whatever. There will be a door in that. Before the person goes in, I will go in there and sing and call in the powers and rattle and empower the space. They will then step in to that and we will close the door. So they are now standing in a circle outside of ordinary reality. They are literally standing in the centre of the world on the altar, which is the centre point. We're getting into kind of cosmology here. Wherever you are, if you're doing a sacred thing, and even if you're not doing a sacred thing, you are the centre of the universe. You are the world tree, the Aksamundi, the point that has the lower world beneath you, the upper world above you, 
and the four directions in front, behind, to the left and to the right. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you are the centre of the universe. Your little three-year-old tantrum-filled child was absolutely right and your parents were wrong. You rock. You are the centre of the world. <laughs> okay, but that doesn't mean you have to be a megalomaniac. Um, all right, so this person's standing there and then with all the intent that they can generate, and we've probably done a whole load of work before they even go into the centre, they then call their parents to them. Maybe we put a cushion, I mean this is kind of getting into therapy work, maybe we put a cushion down on the floor outside, or we put a chair or whatever, and they imagine that that person is coming to sit there, and then they talk to them. And uh, there's other things that we do. Maybe we cut connections to them, you know, if there's sort of fibres of intent between the parent and the child that aren't helpful or whatever. There's a whole process of stuff. But in effect, you're making an altar there that the person has stepped into. And generally, people will experience a real powerful place. And they won't necessarily know how powerful it was in there until they come out. It can get very weird if you're standing on an altar and doing a ceremony. It's like uh, it's like swirly. It's like the universe goes swirl, like being in a whirlwind. You get kind of dizzy, you get disorientated. And then when you step out of it and you step back into ordinary reality, you, uh, you kind of, you, you notice the difference. You may not even feel very much in there, but when you step out of it, you know you've been a long way out. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. So that's another form of altar. Every tradition around the world has altars of some sort. Um, uh, Lakota Uwupi ceremony, the spirit calling ceremony. You have like a boxing ring. Tins of earth in the four corners of the directions, which are like the posts of the, uh, that hold the strings of a, of a boxing ring. And the, the cans of earth come from uh, the, the earth taken outside of a gopher. So you have these tins of gopher soil, you know, the, the, the diggings out of the gopher tunnels. I live in Britain, we don't have gophers. Oh, we do actually, don't we, on the Isle of Wight. Anyway, that's going off the point. Um, and uh, then there's tobacco ties, which I talked about last time, on strings, all the way round, forming like the wall all the ropes, yeah, the ropes of, of the boxing ring. And the medicine person, the Uupi man, is going to be inside there. That's an altar. That's set up as a sacred space. And that's where the spirits come to him in. Another word for altar is mesa, Spanish word for table. All the South American traditions talk of them as mesas because they are often actually put on tables um, and also because a table is something that contains things. But that's, that's another good name to, to use, mesa. It's a big subject. I've, I think I've probably talked enough. I mean, I feel like I've only just scratched the surface. If something doesn't feel good, take it off in terms of it shouldn't be on the altar. Move things around. Never be frightened to experiment. Put things on the altar. Take them off the altar. See if they sing. An altar, yeah, an altar's like a choir. I'm sorry, it's a probably a terrible, terrible metaphor to use, but it's a good one, perhaps. An altar is like a choir. All the objects are singing, and they've got to sing in tune. And if you kind of stand there and you hear this discordant squawk coming from that quartz crystal that you bought very expensively from that shop last week, 
then it shouldn't be on the altar. Take it off. Okay? And as I say, put that tin of chicken soup there and maybe it'll sing in perfect harmony. Whatever. It's important. Buddhist traditions, which I think is a nice one, is that you don't put anything on the altar that's poisonous. You would not put a box of matches on an altar because they're toxic and you want the altar to be a beautiful thing. So that's something to think about. Of course, if you were doing dark arts or whatever, which I hope you're not, then you probably would put toxic stuff down because that would be intent of, of what you were doing with the altar. Not all altars are there for the benefit of all beings, but hopefully yours are, and hopefully mine are. So, uh, you don't put matches down or anything else that's going to be like that. A lot of stuff. We'll come back to altars because it's a, it's a big topic. And it links, I mean, it links with the offerings uh, topic that I talked about last time. And it also links with the whole idea of bundles and sacred objects. Um, I mean, for me, that's the kind of the world that I move in. You know, it's like sacred objects rule. So, uh, you know, you've got to look after them. You know, you've got to look after them on an energetic level and you've got to look after them on a practical level. You know, if you get little insects nibbling your feather fan, you've got to know what to do with it. And if you get nasty, gunky energy on the rattle you bought, you've got to know what to do with that too. It's a practical and spiritual thing. Well, I guess spiritual is practical. All right, I've talked enough. Please contact me. My email address is nick at sacredhoop.org. My website is nicholaswood.net. Please go and visit Sacred Hoop magazine. And uh, if you'd like to subscribe, we'll love you forever. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll remember you on me also. <laughs> um, Sacred Hoops available as a paper magazine and a PDF download. You can get a special offer, a uh, subscription to the PDF version, if you go to this hidden, invisible website, which is www.sacredhoop.org forward slash offer.html you can't get to it from any other place on the website there's no links there but there you will find a special offer £7.50 instead of £10 uh, subscription for the PDF version and if you want to have a proper paper magazine then please just subscribe and we will send them out to you uh, we're just putting our 56th issue together We've got some great articles coming up, all sorts of stuff to do with land and uh, sacred traditions from South America and uh, all sorts of places, some Tibetan stuff in there too. And there's some, um, I'm trying to think, I can never remember what we're going to have in this issue of the magazine. It always gets to the point of two weeks or so before print and you'd think I really should have all the articles kind of in my head and know what's in, but I just go blank whenever I think about it. Anyway, um... This podcast's website is threeworlds.co.uk. Three is the number, so it's numeral threeworlds.co.uk. That's also the website for a gallery that I have and run of antique, uh, shamanic and Tibetan Buddhist ritual objects. So there's a load of stuff on there. There's some nice Native American rattles. There's a lot of Mongolian shamanism and Buddhist objects, and there's Buddhist objects from Tibet and Nepal as well. Um, and there's also a whole load of PDF articles that you can download for free. 
uh, and, and bits and pieces like that. I must tell you, I've been meaning to, to say this for ages and ages and ages. I wanted to tell you a story about a shop. When I were a lad, growing up in, in England, um, I was about 20, I guess, something like that. There was this shop in the city of Worcester, which is where I used to live, called Tolly's. Now, Tolly's was a tiny little shop underneath sort of, uh, you know, just, just very close to, in the shadow of, that's the word I'm looking for, of Worcester Cathedral. And it was filthy. Tolly's was this filthy, disgusting shop that was run by a, a kind of filthy, disgusting guy. Um, he, was, he, was, he was all right, he was, but he, he looked very disreputable and uh, he was very old and sort of wizened and, uh, and, and scruffy looking. And it was a shop that sold Tibetan objects. And it was like a set from an Indiana Jones film. You would not believe this shop. It was scattered all over. There was no order in it. It was just scattered with Tibetan objects. The window of the shop was full of enormous great bronzes of Buddhas and things like that, some of them two or three feet high. It had a big stuffed crocodile hanging up in the window that was covered in prayer beads and necklaces. It was never open, but occasionally he would be in there and you'd go in and it would be dark and grey and it's like the whole quality of light was sucked out of reality when you went into this shop. There was all these shelves in there. There's, there's sort of shelves full of objects. Uh, there's even a human skull on one of them, I kid you not. Um, he's got big six-inch nails driven into the wall with uh, tanker paintings hanging off in reams. He's got a tiny little back room with statues of Buddhas worth thousands of pounds, you know, sort of five or six feet high, beautiful, beautiful statues. He never wants to talk to you. He never wants to say anything to you. He's, he's really gruff. And uh, if you get talking or if you show an interest, then he'll start talking to you and then he'll come out with stuff. And he's really interesting, as you can imagine. Um, I went in there one day and I sort of said to him, have you got anything Mongolian? Because I was kind of uh, in, in the beginning throes of all this shamanic stuff. And um, he sort of scrambled about and said, yeah, I think I've got something somewhere. And he kind of climbs up on a chair and scrambles about on top of a bookcase and pulls down this beautiful gow box. Gows are these lovely little portable shrine boxes. And it's made of silver. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, I thought, oh, that's really nice. Um, OK. And uh, I said to him, uh, how much is it? And he said, 2,000 quid. Now, this was 20 years ago. £2,000, that's $4,000 20 years ago. You can imagine that would be a hell of a lot now. He was amazing. He was just this amazing guy. And this shop was like, it was absolutely out of this world in a very physical, literal sense. And I've just been thinking about it because I've been doing this Three Worlds uh, gallery and I'm kind of getting all these objects. And uh, the shop's gone now. It's a florist. And I guess the guy's dead. I mean, it was a long time ago. And uh, about 10 years or so ago, I had this dream where Mr. Tolly actually came up and gave me all his stock, which was a bloody powerful dream. It was a good dream. And he just caught me the other day because I, here I am kind of collecting all this stuff and offering it for sale. And I got this desperate urge to go and buy a grotty shop under the shadow of Worcester Cathedral. <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway. 
Good story. Absolutely true. It was the most amazing. I've never, ever seen a shop like it. It really was like something out of a movie set. You wouldn't believe it if you saw a shop like it. So, blessings on Mr. Tolly. He was a, definitely a, a character. So, thank you for listening. Please visit the websites. Please listen next time. Thank you. Bye.